Galatians 5, beginning with verse 7, says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. So, Galatians 5, we've been talking about understanding Christianity. One of the most important things about understanding Christianity is understanding the difference between grace and law, or self-righteousness versus God's righteousness, or works versus faith. So we've been talking about legalism. We've been talking about what it looks like to be free. And the rest of this chapter, we'll talk more about what freedom really is, what it looks like, what it feels like to be free, and what are the limits on our freedom. Why doesn't law work? What's the problem with law? And so for today, I have to serve up for you guys. It's not normally what I do, but I have eight problems with legalistic thinking. So before we actually get into that, Today has a few things that you may want to jot down. Eight problems with legalistic thinking. And I even have a test today to see if maybe you're a legalistic thinker. But before that, I always like to define my terms because we can say the same word and have different meanings of it. So I went back to Webster's 1812 dictionary. Definition of legalism is strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. And then Christianity.com has a definition. Legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness or right standing in God's sight by their good works. Legalists believe that they can earn or merit God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. That's what a man named Thomas Schreiner said. A legalist believes that their good works and obedience to God affects their salvation, accomplishes it. Legalism focuses on God's law more than relationship with God. It keeps external laws without a truly submitted heart. And legalism adds human rules to divine laws and treats them as divine. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about that. Your traditions on the level of Scripture... If you ever are part of a church or an organization where there's the Bible, but there's our other book. The Bible's here, but it's secondary to our book with our group's rules and our codes and our ways of practicing. So that's a sign that legalism is happening. Legalism is not simply an activity we engage in. It's a whole mindset. It's a whole culture. It's a whole series and a way of thinking. It's a whole pattern of thought and life. And if you have a legalistic mindset, so you'll hear me today not talk about legalism, but about legalistic thinking, because that's what I'm more concerned about for you and for myself is, do I have a legalistic thinking way of approaching my relationship to God, my relationship to others? The question is, how does the world really work? How did God design it to work? Why do laws exist? Laws exist to constrain the behavior of people who don't love. 
That's why laws exist. And Paul's going to outline that. When love for the church, where love exists, you don't need law. Because love's way more powerful than rules. And that's what this section is about today. Legalism is based on expectation of performance. There's a reward for good performance, and there's punishment for bad performance. And legalistic thinking says people should get only what they deserve. You know what I'm talking about? But grace says, I'm going to get something I didn't deserve. I'm going to get a blessing I don't deserve. People parent based on legalism. People have church based on legalism. Your marriage can be filled with legalism. Expectation, if you do good, if you do what I want, then I reward you. We also call it behavior modification, right? If you do what I want, then I reward you. But if you don't do what I want, then I punish you. And that's how we change behavior, reward and punishment. It's effective to a certain degree. You can train dogs that way. It's effective to a certain degree, but what it can never do is change the heart. That's why I'm talking about legalistic thinking, legalistic culture, patterns of thought, because it infects and affects your marriage, your family, your parenting, your church life, the way you deal with people, all of your relationships, including your relationship with God, and primarily and foremost, your relationship with God, and then from there, everywhere else. So the question, the tests, which of these in a general sense, I'm going to give you a category A and a category B. You're not going to tell anybody else, so you can be honest with you. Which of these series of words best describe your life? All right, category A, and I'll repeat them. Guilt, fear, shame, blame, and bitterness. That's category A. Or category B, love, joy, peace, acceptance, and gratitude. Yeah, don't answer for anybody but yourself. Be honest with yourself. We're all going to experience parts of all of those in our lives. But the question is, which category A or B is more dominant in your life? Now, look, I've been a pastor for 16 years, taught Bible studies for three years before that, been a Christian for about 26 years. My experience in the body of Christ is that the majority of people, if they're honest, would say category A, that life is mostly dominated, if I really sit down and think about it, by guilt and fear, and shame, and blame, and bitterness. And I go, well, there's a problem there. Because the next question I'll ask you is, if, I ask, if we ask Jesus this question, Jesus, tell us, which of these categories best describes your life? Guilt, fear, shame, blame, and bitterness, or love, joy, peace, acceptance, and gratitude? Which one would Jesus say? He would say B. So we should be experiencing the same thing Jesus is experiencing as Christians. So the eight problems with legalistic thinking. Are you ready for them? You ready to roll through these? All right. Verse 7. Paul says, speaking to the Galatian church, he says, you have been running well. Or it says you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So the problem number one with legalistic thinking is legalistic thinking chooses to trust lies over the truth. You know, sometimes a lie can be beneficial to you. Sometimes people would rather believe a beneficial lie than a difficult truth. Am I speaking the truth to you guys? We call it convenient lies. So Paul says to them, to the Galatians, he says, look, you guys, and it's in the part of speech it is, you've been running well. They started well. It's like they started out in a race called Christianity. They're on the track of life. 
and they've started out of the gate as Christians. And they started out well. I mean, they got out of the gate strong and they're running quickly. They're doing well. But then something happens. He says, who hindered you? And it's literally to be beat back. Who beat you back from obeying the truth? Paul had said to them, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to seek to be perfected in the flesh? In other words, when you began, it's not about how you start. It's really about how you finish. A lot of people start really strong, but many drop out halfway through or they get stumbled or they give up or whatever the case might be. Now, there's a group of people that started out really well. They started strong. And I looked around the room, and I know a lot of you guys, you started strong. Some of you have been running for a long time and still running strong, still going strong. But there's some seats that are empty, not because of social distancing, but because people dropped away from the race. There's many of reasons that people might drop away. But in this case, Paul says to them, it was the influence of a who. He says, who, not a what, but a who. Who hindered you? from not just running the race, and he equates it to obeying the truth. Running the race for Paul equals obeying the truth. Now, you got to know this too. Obeying, it's the same word that we use for faith or trust. Who hindered you from trusting the truth? Because really, think about it. Obedience and trust are connected. They should be. Biblically, they're connected. Maybe not in the world. Maybe in the world, obedience and fear are connected. But in the Bible, obedience is what I do because I trust the person who's communicating to me. Think about it. Many of you were here, you attend this church in a lot of ways because you've come to trust me. You've trust what I'm saying to you is a valid explanation of the scriptures. You ever been to a church where you didn't trust the leadership? Believe me, I take that trust very seriously. And you know that. I take this role very seriously and what I say, and thinking it through and studying it out so that I can give you the best that I can with the Spirit of God hopefully working and prayerfully working through me. So they had trusted in the truth that Paul brought them, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and their lives being connected, them being acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, and they're just trusting him. And they were saved from their paganism. They were rescued from all kinds of immorality. And man, this is great. I love to see people get rolling in the faith. But when you're new, then you're at work and you're working away and there's a guy there who's from some kind of cult. And you're working together and talking about God and and you say, yeah, yeah, I was at church on Sunday. And they say, wait a second, did you say you go to church on Sunday? Church on Sunday? Oh, that'll never do. What, what do you mean? Well, Sunday's, Sunday's the devil's day. Real Christians go to church on Saturday. And you're like all messed up in your head when you hear that. You're like, really? My pastor didn't tell me that. I didn't know that. I wonder what else I'm doing wrong. And all of a sudden, then you ask more questions, and then they've got their whole list of things that they do. And now you're going, wait a second. I'm not sure I'm really saved. And I've watched people get drawn, sucked back into legalism, sucked back into this system of religion, and they start to change. Do you know what I'm talking about? They start to change. And Paul was noticing that change in the Galatians. He was noticing that the change in their behavior because of this, whoever it was, bringing in legalism. So legalistic thinking chooses to trust lies, the lie of Jesus is not enough. That's the lie. Anytime in your life where you're experiencing guilt, 
shame, fear, blame, and bitterness, you can usually track that back to a thought that says Jesus is not enough to make you acceptable before God, that there's something you have to do. And then you have to choose to believe that to continue to experience guilt, fear, shame. And those are all things experienced in the garden when Adam and Eve fell into sin. The guilt and the fear of God and the shame before God and before each other. So everything in life is ultimately about trust. You're going to hear a lot of messages in your life from a lot of different people and a lot of different sources about God, who he is, what he likes, what he doesn't like. And at some point, you're going to have to trust, and you will trust somebody with your life and your future and your hope. And there's only two messages out there. It's either grace or works. It's either I believe that I've been given a gift by God That's one door that very few people find. The vast majority of the world is going through the wide gate, the big door that says you've got to work your way to God. And there's a hierarchy. And that door leads where, gang? To destruction. Which is so sad because grace is so much easier, isn't it? I mean, in some ways, some ways it's harder, but grace is like God says to you and me, here's righteousness, here's relationship with me, Here's my love. Here's my forgiveness. An eternal relationship with me as a father and a child. And I just want to give it to you. I just want to express my love to you. And you go, nah, no thanks. I'd rather earn it. Or I'd rather try. Okay. Well, we must move on. Verse 8. This persuasion, he says, does not come from him who calls you. So where are you guys getting this, he says. You're not getting it from God. So point number two, legalistic thinking does not originate with God. As we said, if it's a lie, and if it's based on lies, the lie that you have to do something to be right with God, other than faith, other than belief, then where can it originate? It originates in hell. It originates with Satan. That's what he wants you to think. Whenever you fall into that mental trap that Jesus is not enough for me to be continually accepted by God, Not only are you believing lies, but you're giving Satan a place to tell you what to believe. This is pretty extreme stuff, isn't it? Because we don't always think about this stuff. We think that these things are small potatoes in our lives. This is huge. Because it'll take guilt, shame, and fear in your life and blame and bitterness, and it'll transform it to love and joy and peace and acceptance and gratitude. That's why this is so important. So legalistic thinking does not originate with God. He says this persuasion, this thing you're being persuaded of, and the people who are drawing the Galatians back into saying that you have to become a Jew before you can really be close to God. So you're Christians, that's fine, but you got to become Jewish, you got to be circumcised, go through all the law, keep the Mosaic law, and then you can be right with God. They're very persuasive. You ever met someone from a cult or someone who comes from that legalistic kind of cultish way of thinking. It's our book. It's our way. We have our things and we judge everybody else based on our deal. They have trip on you that you're not right because you're not like us. So they've got their verses. They're practiced. They'll show up at your door, knock on the door, and they'll come in and they'll want to sit down and they'll take you through all their verses to show you why their deal is right and why you're not quite where you need to be unless you're like us. It's really super persuasive, but it's not from God. Any true gospel will never be centered on man and what man does will always be centered 
on the finished work of the cross. Paul said, I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's all the tools you need to combat any false religion or any false teaching is Jesus said it's finished, and I believe it. I believe it. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. It doesn't come from God. Then he gives a little proverbial saying, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 9, you can put that in quotes. It's a proverb. You know, like maybe in our day, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. He could have said that. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Anybody ever made bread from scratch? Anybody use starter to make that bread? Anybody have like ancient starter? There's like people that have starter that goes back to the 1800s. Every time you make bread and you leaven it, that's the yeast, makes it rise, it puffs it up. When you make the dough, you break off a little piece of it and you put it in the fridge. And then when you make your next loaf of bread, when you make the dough, you add a little bit of that starter and the leaven in that starter, all you need is a little bit and it spreads. And then that whole loaf, you take your bread out of the oven, the whole thing's risen. How did that happen? How come not just one corner got puffed up and the rest of it was flat? Because that leaven, it's unseen, it's pervasive, it spreads and it puffs up. And that's why leaven in the Bible is such a great example of sin, such a great example of false teaching. And Paul says, hey, you guys know it doesn't take a lot. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So the third thing I'll tell you is legalistic thinking is contagious. We could say in our day and age, we would say it's like a transmission of a virus. All you need is a little bit, and all of a sudden it can go throughout a whole community. Legalistic thinking is just as deadly. You meet someone that they just give off that aroma, you know? You meet someone and they give off that aroma of they're better than you spiritually because, oh, you don't homeschool your kids? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Real Christians homeschool their kids. And real churches don't use drums. We just use organ or piano. And real Christians wear this. And real Christians eat that. And there's just an aroma of you're a loser and I'm superior. But it begins to play on your own sense of adequacy. You begin to go, oh, no, maybe I'm not adequate. Oh, you don't speak in tongues? Oh, well, sorry. You haven't arrived like we've arrived. You go, oh, man, I haven't arrived. So you begin to get infected. Now, all of a sudden, you're going, "Uh, honey, you know, we need to get some new clothes and homeschool our kids and stop reading Harry Potter books and whatever else. You know, we got to do all this stuff we got to do now. And then now two people in the church are doing it. And then all of a sudden everybody else is starting. You're shaking your head. Am I right on about that? You've witnessed that. The good news is that I hope is that grace also can spread that way. But it really depends on when a church group is strong in grace. Grace is an immune system for legalism. When a church as a whole is strong in grace and gets grace, when legalists come in, they can't get a foothold because people are educated in the things of God because you know better, because you read your Bible, because you know what the cross means and you know who you are in Christ. Legalism can't appeal to me. I'm already satisfied. God is already satisfied with me. I have nothing to prove. But if you're desperately afraid of being accepted or not, that makes you susceptible to legalism. I've watched good people that lose their minds. Anybody know what the Feast of Tabernacles is? 
It's a fall feast. There's seven feasts in Israel. It's one of the fall feasts, and it commemorates that they came out of Israel and they had to live in these makeshift huts as they were traveling through the desert. So to this day, if you go to Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles, people sleep on their balconies. They set up these huts on their balconies. So I've never been there during this time. I've seen pictures. I want to go, but it's just too crowded. So I don't go that time. But I have a friend who fell into legalism and he began keeping the Feast of Tabernacles by sleeping in his garage. That was his deal. He's like, I'm keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and I'm going to sleep in my garage. I've met Jews in Israel that say it's really almost impossible to be a proper Jew if you don't live in Jerusalem. You just can't do it because you got to do all these other things that can only be done properly in Jerusalem. So again, that's the belief that they have. But it's contagious. It's contagious. And grace is sort of an immunity. Grace is the inoculation against legalism. So if you come to understand that you're accepted by God, you don't have to change anything to be accepted by God. And now Paul says in verse 10, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So Paul says, (laughs) I like this verse 10. Paul's so honest. He's wonderfully and honestly gentle and yet firm at the same time. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. Like he doesn't say I have confidence in you because he doesn't have confidence in them. He has confidence in the Lord. And that's something that we can say amen to, right? I don't have confidence in me. I have confidence in the Lord. So he says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, that you are going to keep your mind straight, that you're not going to get towed away by this false teaching. But he, whether it's a ringleader or this person, Paul doesn't name him, who's espousing this false teaching of legalism, he who troubles you shall bear his judgment. Notice this, whoever he is, whoever he is. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't know who he is. I'll explain it in a minute. Let me give you the fourth point. Legalistic living doesn't manipulate God. Legalistic living and legalistic thinking doesn't manipulate God. You can't fool God. See, you can live that kind of life where everything you are, your whole identity is based on your performance. And you can actually become very successful based on that. You can find religious acceptance. I mean, the Pharisees were thought to be the most superior religious people of their day. They had arrived. And that was Paul's goal as a young rabbinical student. I mean, he was marching his way up the ranks. So if you get into a system, a legalistic sort of performance-based system like that, you can really rise through the ranks and become somebody. People get all kinds of jobs because they want to become somebody, and people use church. Is this going to surprise anybody? People use religion to become somebody. And when you're performance grading everything, then you compare yourself to someone else and go, well, they're nothing, I'm something, look at the position I hold. I tell you what, I got to be honest with you as, as your pastor. And you're saying, thank you, pastor, for being honest. As if the rest of this, what I've said has not been honest. But one of the things that drives me crazy, and I don't know why it exists, but when I go to a church and I see all the fancy chairs on the stage where all the big wiggity wigs of the church sit, like they're kings and queens or something on the throne. Like Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Now, again, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but if you're offended, that's up to you. Just saying, you know, We can rise through the ranks, but if you're living a legalistic life, if you're saying, I'm approaching God based on my own merit, I want to stand before God, me and me alone. God, 
here's what I've done to earn your love. Then Paul's saying to them, God doesn't care if you're the Pope or Mother Teresa or whoever else. It doesn't matter. Whoever that person is, they're going to stand before the judgment. Because there's either grace where I receive the free gift of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all of my sins, and I bring on judgment day, I don't bring a list of my works. Well, I've been a deacon in the church. I was a pastor. I tithed every week. I attended Bible study. I have a pin for 25 years. I went to Bible study, and I memorized great sections of the Bible. Here's what I've done, God. I pray for an hour a day. I fast. I don't think anybody else does that stuff, God. I have gone above and beyond. And God says, well, on this date, you did this, and on this date, you did that, and that wasn't very loving, was it? So on Judgment Day, if you bring your own works, you're going to find yourself condemned. But on Judgment Day, if you say, God, I have just blown it, but I have a lamb, will you accept my lamb? God says, I love my son, and I love what he's done for you. Yes, I will accept you based on the lamb that you've brought, whoever you are, doesn't matter if the least or the most. And evidently, this person had some kind of reputation among the Christian community or the Jewish community. Verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. It may be that Paul had the reputation that was that he was still preaching circumcision, that it was being said, Oh, well, see, Paul, he still preaches circumcision. They were using Paul's name and attaching it to what they wanted to do to say, we're going to validate because Paul still preaches circumcision. And there was a situation in the book of Acts where Paul has his young disciple, Timothy. I think it's Acts 16. Paul has his young disciple, Timothy, has him go through the act of circumcision. Timothy was already saved. And there was a reason, a cultural reason he did that in ministry, not a salvation issue. He chose to get circumcised for the ministry purposes, not for salvation, for a whole different thing. So they may have grabbed that and said, see, Paul had Timothy get circumcised. He's preaching circumcision. But Paul says, I'm not preaching circumcision. If I was, I wouldn't be getting persecuted. The greatest persecution that Paul faced was from Jews. And if he was still preaching the law, he could have avoided all of that. But he says then the problem would have been the offense of the cross would have ceased. Write this down, number five, legalistic thinking is offended by grace. Grace is offensive to the legalist because they work so hard to be right with God. I mean, they invest their whole lives into doing all these things and having this book and living this life and then going here at the right time and going there at the right time and not eating this and not drinking that and not doing this. And then you show up and say, you didn't have to do any of that. What? What do you mean I didn't have to baptize as an infant? I took my first communion. I saved my Hail Marys and I have the rosaries and I got all that. I prayed to the saint. Nah, you didn't have to do any of that. That's offensive. It offends our pride. It offends our sense of self-accomplishment and self-righteousness. So that's what Paul is saying. The cross, the finished work of the cross, offends, offends the legalist. So if you find someone who's offended by the cross, then you've sniffed out a legalist. Don't we just bathe in the cross, right? You just bathe in the truth of the cross. That's why we can go, I'm free. I'm so free. Jesus paid it all. Now, hang on tight. This is church. It's going to get a little dicey here for a minute. Verse 12, you can sense Paul's frustration. And he really is super frustrated. He says, I could wish 
that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. You can write next to cut themselves off. You can write next to that amputate. Now, I'm going to keep this G-rated for families, but he's talking about the issue of circumcision. That's the entryway into Judaism and to righteousness with God and into the legalistic system. This is the initiation, is circumcision and now keeping all the law. So Paul says, oh yeah, that group that brings to you circumcision, I wish they'd take the whole thing off. I didn't say it, Paul said it. And I think there's a double entendre here because in Deuteronomy 23, anyone that's emasculated is cut off from the assembly. So I think Paul is in a sense saying, I wish they would cut themselves off and has this double meaning of not just cutting off the the part, but also being cut off. I wish they would be cut off from the assembly. All right, verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So this great clarification of freedom. He says, look, we're not called to be a bunch of rule-following moralists. Paul deals with moralism. There's traditionalism. That means what's most important for my acceptance to God is tradition. Why are you going to heaven? Because I've kept my tradition. The second problem is moralism. Why are you going to heaven? Because I'm a good person. I'm moral. Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 2. He says, who are you, you who judge another and are guilty of the same thing? Moralism is so dangerous because you say you know it's wrong to lie. So when you lie, you lie knowingly, so you condemn yourself. That's the problem with moralism is nobody lives morally perfect. Anybody here morally perfect? Never made an immoral action? Ever had an immoral thought? See, paganism is almost better in a sense because they're clueless this living according to the world, living in immorality, the moralist says, ha, we're going to point the finger at everybody else who we know, I can't believe they did that. And then you turn around and do the same thing. And you knew better. And you acknowledged you knew better. You're almost doubly guilty because of that. So he says, you're free. Brethren, you've not been called to traditionalism, to legalism, to moralism. You've been called to freedom, to immense. You're free from all of that. But you're not free from this thing in us called the flesh, which is our fallen human appetite. So Satan will get you on one end. He'll tell you, how dare you think you can just show up at that church? If people only knew who you really were, people only knew what you did, they'd never want to sit near you. They'd never want to let you into their group, their club, their church. So Satan wants to get you, and the finished work of the cross deals with that. We talked about that, lies of Satan. But the other side that we face is the flesh, my own human appetites, my desires. So freedom is not freedom to indulge my appetites. It's actually freedom from legalism. And it's freedom from my human appetites, my sinful human appetites as well. So he says, look, here's the danger. The other thing your mind will tell you when it's not telling you you're no good and you don't deserve to be in church and God can't love you the way you are and all that stuff, the other side of the coin is, oh, your mind gets the message of freedom and grace. You say, oh, I'm saved by grace. Well, maybe I can have that six-pack after all. Maybe I can watch that thing on that illicit website because I'm saved by grace. God will forgive me. 
and it becomes an excuse. See, here's the problem. A lot of people have come here from legalism. In other words, you've come up in a group with a church giving you legalism, and legalism is good at constraining or restraining behavior. So you sort of had your act together. You sort of looked religious, and it kept you from doing some things because you were afraid not to be accepted or be ostracized by your group. But then you get out of that nonsense, you come to Calvary Chapel, and we tell you it's grace, man, you're free. But unless you're really transformed, unless God has poured his love into your heart, all of a sudden you watch people spiral the other direction and start backsliding like crazy. But he says, don't use your liberty. I'm telling you you're free, but here's what you have to be careful of. Don't use your liberty. If you like to circle things, circle opportunity, and it means a starting point or a base of military operation. Don't mount an attack or mount an aggressive pursuit of sin because you've just discovered today that you're free in Christ, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're accepted. Because that'll just hurt you in a different way. Legalism will hurt you one way. Sinful immoralism will hurt you a different way. So notice this. Legalistic thinking, this is number six if you're keeping track. Legalistic thinking is generally self-serving. So we talked to them about being slaves to the law, that law dictates every aspect of your life. Like, I can't think for myself. I have a book that tells me everything that I have to do. So that's a sense of slavery. He says, if you want to be slaves, then be slaves. And that's the word serve is the Greek word for slavery. And if you're into slavery, why don't you be a slave to one another through love? I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're driving down the road and this butterfly, beautiful the butterfly comes flitting across the road and you smash into them with your windshield. Does anybody look in the rearview mirror? Am I the only one that does that? I look in the mirror and I see this beautiful butterfly just tumbling down and down into the road. And I'm thinking, oh, silly butterfly, you should have been flying smarter. You know, we talk about being transformed. We go from caterpillars to butterflies. This whole, we become a new creation in Christ. But you take that new creation and you fly in stupid places. You're still a butterfly, but you hurt yourself. You got to fly smarter as a Christian. Am I making sense? I'm like this poor butterfly just living along, doing its thing. I'm free. I'm free. And bam, into the windshield. Tumble backwards. So I'm free. I'm free. I can handle what I used to do. I can handle it again. I'm free. I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm good. God will forgive me. He loves me. But instead of getting enslaved to sin, instead of getting enslaved to law, you can make yourself a slave to love, to what love demands to what love asks. And so there's a danger of freedom without loving others. And he says in verse 14, he kind of expounds on this a little bit. He says, for all the law, all the law. How much is all, church? All is all. Thank you. In the Greek, what does that mean? Oh, you guys are Greek scholars. I love it. I love it. For all the law, 613 laws, is fulfilled or reaches its climax in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Boom. That's one of those microphone dropping moments. Like, that's it. The commandments of God are all expressions of love. I mean, the Beatles were right about one thing. All you need is love. Didn't they say that? All you need is love. And according to Paul, they were right. You see, legalism gets caught up in the details and it misses the heart. So this is number seven. Legalistic thinking misses the big picture. 
Legalistic thinking gets so caught up in the details that it misses the big picture. It misses the heart. The federal tax code, at some point we're going to have to pay taxes. So the federal tax code, 1913, the tax law was 27 pages long. And added extras and some addendums to that. It got to 400 pages. That was our federal tax code, 1913. 2014, the federal tax code is now 2,600 pages long. And if you add the extras and the addendums and all that, it's 73,000 pages. No wonder taxes are confusing. And that's just tax law. Now, the Jews have something called the Talmud, which contains all their religious laws and opinions and arguments about how this should be understood from different rabbis. The Talmud, it means to study. It stretches over 10 million words and 38 volumes. It contains, this is from a BBC article, it's the religious laws that dictate all aspects of life for the observant Jews, from when they wake in the morning to when they go to sleep at night. Every imaginable topic is covered, from architecture to trapping mice. To a greater extent than the other main Jewish holy book, the Torah, the Talmud is a practical book about how to live. So the law says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't do any of your usual customary work. You used to be slaves, and now you're not slaves. So take a day off. Enjoy a day of rest. Now, the Jews took that, well, what does rest mean? Good lawyers, right? Well, how do you define rest? What do you mean by inhale? How do you define intimacy? So we got to define this. So, you know, what does work mean? Work means creative activities, and so that's prohibited. So they got 39 categories of prohibited creative activities that include not igniting a fire, which is why you can't press the button on the elevator on Shabbat in Israel, because anytime a light comes on, there's a filament, and the filament heats up, and that's a fire, and creates light. So you have the Sabbath elevator that just stops it every floor, because you can't kindle a fire. You know what else you can't do on the Sabbath? You can't extinguish a fire. So that means if your house erupts into flames on the Sabbath, you have to watch it burn down, because that's what the law says. That's what their interpretation of the law says. So to get into the details, but miss the heart. And this is why Jesus got in so much trouble when he heals on the Sabbath, because you could only save life. You could save a life on the Sabbath. But Jesus says to the Jews, he says, look, if your son or your oxen, you know, you drive your John Deere in a ditch on the Sabbath, you shouldn't be on your John Deere anyway, but you could travel a little bit. But if your ox or your donkey falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, he creates a moral dilemma for them. What are you going to do? you leave your son in a ditch on the Sabbath because it's his work to get him out. So Jesus heals the guy because it's right to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus gives us the proper understanding, the good Samaritan. We understand that as well. It's all fulfilled in this gang. One word. I love it because it's simple. I need things simple. God, give it to me simple. He says, okay, Steve, I'm going to give you one word. Everything, everything you want to know about God and be a Christian is summed up in one word, and that word is love, period. A person who loves God does not worship the world. A person who loves God doesn't try to make him something he's not. A person who loves their children doesn't try to make them something they're not. Create things in their own image. When we love people, we set them free, and we set God free to be who he is. 
A person who loves his neighbor doesn't cheat on him with his wife. Kids that love their parents honor them. A person who loves justice doesn't lie. Do you get where this is all summed up in love? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the golden rule. I mean, that's what we live by. We don't need rules. That's why if you have love, you don't need law. If you lend somebody something and they break it, what do you want them to do? Talk to me, church. You want them to fix it. That's the right thing to do. So if you borrow something from somebody and you break it, what should you do? You should fix it. That's what the loving thing to do is. This is not rocket science. Oh, I'm getting excited now. It's not rocket science. We have all kinds of legal documents to control behavior because people are unloving. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That's all you need, gang. I love Christianity. It's so simple. I don't have to be able to count to seven or anything like that. Seven times this, seven times that, and 10 times around this, walk around here. You know, it's wonderful. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the final point, hang with me. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Legalistic thinking affects the way we handle conflict. That's number eight. Did I get all eight? Legalistic thinking affects even the way we handle conflict. See, Paul gives them a warning about behaving like animals. Evidently, life in Galatia and the Galatian church has become more like the animal kingdom than God's kingdom. Anybody ever been to a church like that? The elders hate the deacons, and the deacons hate the pastor, and the pastor hates the cemetery committee, and the cemetery committee, I mean, everybody's arguing and fighting and battling for their thing. We're defending our traditions. We're defending our rules. We're attacking those who disagree. That's the way the world operates. As he says, it's like animals biting one another. And Be careful, because pretty soon you'll gulp each other down. They'll destroy everything and each other. See, disagreements are going to happen. There's a way to disagree graciously, and there's a way to disagree legalistically. You see, the legalist, his whole life depends on him being right. And so I have to argue about my point because I have to be right because my relationship to everything is based on me being right. But when you recognize grace, yeah, you're okay. We disagree. I think this, you think that. It's between you and God. It's not between me and you. It's between you and God. It doesn't affect me any. I know what I believe. As for me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. But if you want to do your deal, that's between you and God. Whatever's not from faith is sin. So that's your eight things. We'll end it there. That's your eight problems with legalism.